You are listening to Active Shooter, a podcast that may contain adult themes, explicit language, and graphic depictions of violence. Portions of this show may be traumatic for those under 18. Listener discretion is advised. Around 5.40 this evening, officers started streaming into the Garlic Festival with reports of shots fired. They say the suspected gunman cut through a fence to get into the festival. A band was just starting their final song of the night. That's when the band says they saw a man wearing a green shirt fire into a food area. On Sunday, July 28th, 2019, at around 5.30 p.m., a 19-year-old young man parked his Honda Accord on Laurel Drive in Gilroy, California. He exited his vehicle with a rifle in one hand, a duffel-type bag in the other, making a last-minute decision to leave his shotgun in his car. Yes, he thought, his rifle would be enough for him to complete the mission he was about to embark on. He took the duffel bag and decided to stash the bag on the edge of the creek. The bag contained two loose rounds from the rifle, a rifle scope, a flashlight, and additional ammunition in the pack, and wanted to make sure he could find it easily after he had completed his mission. Wearing camouflage army-type fatigues, a baseball cap, and a gray handkerchief around his neck, and sunglasses on his face, the shooter, who stood just below six feet tall, started following Uvis Creek, heading straight for Christmas Hill Farm, where the Gilroy Garlic Festival was taking place. Once he had reached the metal fence surrounding the festival grounds, he came to a stop. He had already checked out the area and decided going through the fence was a better alternative than through the security checkpoint at the gate, which had metal detectors. For this reason, he had brought a tool with him to cut a slit into the fence so he could completely bypass the main entrance and enter the festival undetected. After a short walk across the Christmas Hill Park, the shooter approached the picnic area and came to a halt next to the entertainment tent where the band Tin Man was playing their final encore. The following clip contains gunshots and the sounds of panicked individuals that may be triggering for some people. If you're not comfortable hearing this audio, please skip forward 11 seconds. The lead singer of the band reported he heard someone yell out to the shooter, Why are you doing this? The shooter violently responded with, Because I'm really angry. We hear automatic gunfire. It was, I mean, you know when you hear it. There was a thin black skirt hiding us from the shooter, but the breeze was catching it and flipping the bottom of it up. If he sees us, we're sitting ducks. We're just all laying there on our stomachs. So you're thinking he could just spray up. right under the stage? Oh, yeah. Oh, he would have gotten all of us easily. People were screaming and yelling. Uh, there was a policeman, I could tell uh, by his voice, very authoritative voice, I have wounded, I have wounded medic. Police did an absolutely fantastic job. If they wouldn't have gotten there that fast, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that guy would have killed many more people. Witnesses would later describe seeing a man who looked older than his young 19 years of age. The shooter raised his rifle and started firing the weapon, seemingly at random. I wasn't aware 
what happened when it happened. So I work in the children's area at the far end of the park, and we just had pure chaos going through and heard that there was a shooter. Wasn't sure if it was true or not, but because I have children in my area, I just made sure my vendors got the kids out and safe and were with their parents and out of the park. You started, like, you came up with a full vest, like, full bulletproof vest, um, camel tie pants, a hat. Basically, he had the look of a police officer, and uh, I think he had an M4, M5, um, an automatic weapon, and just started, and he just started, like, shooting everybody. Uh, a lot of our family was there, and, uh, well, I guess he, he only got one of my family members, thankfully, but... But we were right, like, we were really close. Like, there was a play area, my cousins were there, my brother was there. And thankfully, he didn't start shooting there first, but, but he's, yeah, he's, he, he had the intent to kill. Victims of the terror at the Gilroy Garlic Festival who survived stated in interviews afterwards that it was obvious the teenager was comfortable handling and firing the gun. As bodies were falling to the ground and people were fleeing in a mass chaos, the gunman continued pulling the trigger, firing 39 shots in total. If you were to ask the shooting victims and survivors how long the gunfire lasted, most would probably say minutes, if not hours. Time had stood still. Never would they believe the sounds of gunfire had only lasted 60 seconds due to the quick thinking of three nearby police officers. Due to the large volume of festival goers, there was already a heavy police presence at the festival. Within 60 seconds, the three police officers, who have yet to be named, fired their service weapons at the shooter, engaging in gunfire, bringing him down to the ground. The police had thought they were the ones to finally eliminate the threat and kill the shooter. At the time that the incident occurred, you know, it was near the end of the final day. It was last night, Sunday. Uh, questions that were asked you know, regarding the security and, and the way that we manage and monitor it from a law enforcement and public safety perspective is that we have police personnel on site the entire time of the festival. We actually create a police compound where we have a command center, uh, a booking area, you know, all the things that you would need to uh, run a major operation like this. The Officers are deployed throughout the park, and they're assigned to different regions of the park, so they're spread out. We don't have officers all in one spot. Uh, when this call came in, the uh, shots being fired, uh, the closest team of officers responded immediately. Uh, they were there in engaging the suspect in less than a minute. Um, the suspect was armed with a assault-type rifle, and... He, as soon as he saw the officers, he engaged the officers and fired at the officers with that rifle. Uh, and I had three officers that engaged the suspect. Uh, and despite the fact that they were outgunned with their handguns against a rifle, uh, those three officers were able to fatally wound that suspect. And uh, the event ended very quickly. A few days later, the coroner's report would say that the gunman had actually been able to put the gun to his own head and pull the trigger. Um, it came to my attention this afternoon uh, that the coroner's office had released a cause and manner of death of the suspect in this case. I, in 
when they do that, it doesn't mean they have the whole report done. We don't have a lot of detail. They just they draw a conclusion. And their preliminary uh, determination on the cause and manner of death is a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And I wanted to address that uh, at least briefly. Um, so when the shooting occurred and our officers ran to the area the shooting was occurred and they engaged their suspect, uh, the suspect immediately changed his fire from the crowd towards the officers. And as they were engaging in gunfire, our officers did fire multiple rounds at the suspect. I do know that the suspect was hit multiple times by the rounds that our officers fired, which put him down. Uh, but it's, it's a, it appears now with that ruling on the cause of manner of death, that once he was down, that he was able to get a round off and he shot himself. Uh, and it sounds like that round was to the head. When the then president of Gavilan College, Rudolph J. Malone, started the Gilroy Garlic Festival in 1979, he never would have thought the festival would become so large and popular. He got the idea of a garlic festival from a small town in France who would host the Isle of Wight Garlic Festival. The Gilroy Garlic Festival quickly gained popularity so that year after year, more attendees visited from all over the country. The festival soon became one of the nation's best-known food festivals. Every year, during the last full weekend in July, close to 100,000 people attend the festival. A nonprofit organization organizes the entire festival. To run smoothly, it requires over 4,000 volunteers. The festival is a large fundraiser to raise money for nonprofit groups, including schools and sports groups in the town of Gilroy, California. In the past 40 years, the festival has raised over $11 million. The 41st annual Gilroy Garlic Festival took place on July 26th, 27th, and 28th of 2019. The entire long weekend was jam-packed with cooking competitions, live entertainment, and of course, all types of garlic foods. The event was a fun environment for the entire family. For the adults, there were different cooking competitions featuring famous chefs as hosts and judges. People could take a stroll down Gourmet Alley, where foods of all kinds was available for purchase and tasting. The well-known artist, Colby Calais, had even performed on the amphitheater stage Saturday night. Other performers were Kaylee Hammock, Waterloo Revival, and King Calloway. Join us for great garlicky food and family fun at the Gilroy Garlic Festival presented by St. Louis Regional Hospital on July 26, 27th, and 28th. Don't miss the special Saturday evening concert with Colby Calais featuring Gone West, as well as celebrity chef appearances by Top Chef Head Judge Tom Colicchio, Master Chef winner Jerron Hurt, and more. Arrive in style and comfort aboard the Caltrain Garlic Train on Saturday or Sunday. Get discount tickets online at GilroyGarlicFestival.com. The Challenge Butter Cook-Off stage hosted competitions such as the Garlic Showdown, the Secret Ingredient Basket Competition, and the Gilroy Garlic U Backyard Rib Throwdown. Kids of all ages took part in the Garlic Chef Junior Competition. If the kids didn't want to challenge themselves in a competition, there was plenty more for them to do, such as carnival rides, games, crafts, bounce houses, and ace painting. There were also kid-friendly food choices, such as funnel cakes and french fries. Every year, festival-goers make their way down through the dusky parking lots at Christmas Hill Park, intending to spend a day of fun with friends and family. Little did they know, it would turn out to be the worst day of most of their lives. Stephen Romero was a peculiar little six-year-old. He enjoyed wearing fresh-pressed button-down shirts and had impeccable manners. 
His family said he would never leave the house without a splash of cologne. Before his mother and grandmother loaded up the car, Stephen was on the front porch playing with his toy cars. Little did he or any other family member know, it would be the last time the little boy would play with those toys. Stephen, his mother Barbara, and his grandmother were enjoying the festival when the shooter opened fire. Stephen was hit in the back, bringing him to the ground instantly. Barbara was shot in the hand and stomach. She would be put in a medically induced coma and would later be brought out of the coma and is now in stable condition. His grandmother was also shot in the leg. She needed surgery on her leg to repair the wound and she is expected to make a full recovery. This is really hard. There's no words to describe because he was such a happy kid. You know, I don't think that this is fair. I just wish that they, got the, that they get the people who did it. We need, uh, we need to know that they got this person and that there's justice. Stephen was immediately taken to the St. Louis Regional Hospital in Gilroy. This is where Stephen would pass away just a few hours after the first shot was fired. Alberto Romeo, Stephen's father, said he would never forget Stephen's round face and twinkling eyes. His very outgoing and loving personality would continue to live on in their large and close-knit family. Um, what's going through my mind is hopefully they, they get the shooters and, uh, Basically, that's it right now, and I, I lost my son. There's nothing I really can do besides try to be with him until I can put him in his in his resting spot, wherever that is. I don't know what to say. Um, my son had his whole life to live, and he was only six. So that's all that. That's all I can say. And you were home with your daughter who was how old she's she's nine years old. And then your wife was shot in the leg? She was shot in her arm. In her hand. Twice. And then your mother in law was shot in the leg? In, in the leg, I believe in the leg, I'm not sure. Kayla Salazar went to the Gilroy Garlic Festival with several of her family members, including her stepdad and two sisters who were four and 12 years old. Her life was tragically cut short just days before she was to turn 12 years old. She was an animal lover, having quite the zoo herself at home, including two dogs, Lucky and Cinnamon, a guinea pig named Albert, a rabbit named Miss Jackson, and a cat named Rosie. Kayla was a lot like most teenagers. She enjoyed playing Mario Brothers and Pokemon Go. Her favorite color was blue. Kayla was a beautiful children that really cared for other people and she cared about animals and she was our motivation and we're in pain that we lost her. Thank you so much from the bottom of our heart. Kayla was very compassionate, charismatic, generous, and resilient. She was also very intelligent, having just graduated from an after-school program called Ace Empower. Kayla and her family members were all eating ice cream when they heard what they thought were fireworks celebrating the end of the festival. It wasn't until the crowd started running and screaming did they realize that they were actually hearing gunshots. Kayla's little sisters were able to escape unharmed. Kayla hung back to help a family member who had a cane and needed assistance. Moving quickly when Kayla was struck in the chest by a bullet, her stepdad immediately started administering CPR to Kayla in an attempt to save her life, but it was too late. She was gone. 
While trying to save her life, Kayla's stepdad was also struck by a bullet but survived his wound. Not only was Kayla a victim of a mass shooting, but she was also a victim of bullying at school. Kayla did not let the bullying bring her down. She just carried on with a loving smile and a warrior-like attitude. Her winning personality and her heroics right before her death will always be remembered. She was like really nice and she did have big dreams. I remember her um, talking about it one time in class. She would like always like tell us like when she would present things like she would always like be smiling like she was a happy person she would be mostly missed by her parents for everything she did for everything growing up how she was how she was this little girl was amazing to her family this she didn't do anything with our family she wrote a letter the day before saying that she had finished cleaning the kitchen like she had promised her mom she had finished uh, cleaning her room like she promised her mom and that if it was now okay to buy her sister the dog that she wanted When Sarah Warner moved to Santa Cruz with her boyfriend, 25-year-old Trevor Irby, from Romulus, New York, in January, she never thought in a million years she would be returning to New York only to bury her true love. Trevor worked as a medical assistant at a nursing home, but was planning on moving back to New York with Sarah in August to pursue his dream of returning to school to become a physician's assistant so he could help others. Trevor was a diehard Pittsburgh Steelers fan and very athletic, playing three sports while attending Romulus Central School, soccer, baseball, and basketball. Trevor and Sarah were sitting at a table chatting when the shooter opened fire. last thing I said to Trevor is, Trevor, I love you. And he said, Mom, I love you. I'm having a good time. I'll be all right. I'll call you tomorrow. Well, my call tomorrow never came. That call for me was getting on the plane to come here to bring him home how could somebody just do that to somebody that never heard a single soul in his life it's senseless there is no reason for stuff like this to happen for a 19 year old kid to go and have a rampage or whatever you want to call this thing that he had it is believed that trevor was shot at close range in the back and died almost instantly Sarah was able to escape the rampage unharmed. Tammy Williams, Trevor's mother, had boarded the first flight she could from New York to California to do the unthinkable, to identify her son. Tammy's oldest son, Tyler Walborn, had died 25 years prior, and now she was having to bury her youngest son, her baby, at 25 years old, only one month after having to bury her own father in June. When asked how Trevor would be remembered, His friends and family all had the same response. He was the happiest person they had ever met, always dancing around, singing, and being loud. Let's not forget Sarah, who had lost her true love and soulmate of five years. Dreams of getting married, buying a house, and having children. Dreams that died the day one person entered the Gilroy Garlic Festival with a high-powered rifle. Trevor was a superstar. He would walk into a room and he would want to beat you and everything that there was any type of competition that was going on and he wanted to dance and sing and just have as much fun as he could have with everybody that was there and always made everybody feel as though they mattered as well. What made the shooter take these three innocent lives and wound over a dozen more? Since the shooting is so recent, we don't have all of the answers and possibly never will. The FBI has called in their Behavioral Analysis Unit, or BAU, to investigate the shooter and just who he was. 
We will cover this mass attack in a later episode of Active Shooter once the investigation is 100% complete. It's apparent that the shooter didn't leave any sort of impression on his hometown of Gilroy, California. He was born into an athletic family, with his dad being a competitive track and field athlete. He even tried out for the 1988 Olympics in two different running events, the 400-meter run and the 800-meter run. The shooter had two biological brothers and one half-brother from his father's previous relationship. The shooter was constantly living in the shadows of his older brothers. One brother was an aspiring boxer and was becoming quite successful. At one point, he was ranked number two in the entire United States in his weight class. There has also been talk of him trying out for the 2020 Olympics, but since his brother's violent actions, that dream may be cut short as their name would be forever tied to the Garlic Festival shooting. The shooter was his brother's sparring partner. They would spend hours sparring or making the movement of boxing, but not delivering heavy blows in the family's home garage that had been converted to a home gym. His biological brothers all graduated from a rather different type of school. Mount Madonna School was a non-traditional kindergarten through 12th grade school. It was founded in the 1970s by students of a silent Indian monk. The school had yoga classes and courses with subjects such as values and world thought. The boy's mom also worked for the school at one point in time. The shooter's two older brothers had both graduated from Mount Madonna, whereas the shooter had transferred to Monte Vista Christian School in Watsonville, California, just prior to his freshman or ninth grade year. He felt like he just didn't fit in with the atmosphere or curriculum at Mount Madonna. While at Monte Vista Christian, the shooter once again felt himself just blending in. After three years at Monte Vista Christian, the shooter's parents thought that maybe he would do better in a public school. Just before his senior year, or 12th grade year, he transferred again to Gilroy High School, where he would graduate from in 2017. School yearbooks would show that he hadn't participated in any school groups or sports teams. He simply didn't make any impression of any of the schools he attended. Former classmates would say that after the shooting, that they would see the shooter in school, but he would never stand out. He was just sort of there. Most 19-year-olds leave some sort of digital footprint in this day and age, usually on social media platforms, whether it be Snapchat, Facebook, or Twitter. The shooter left very little to be discovered by the forensic computer investigators. The shooter had created an Instagram account just four days before the shooting had occurred, though. Just before the shooting, he posted a photo, apparently from the festival, using a derogatory term for mixed-race people and referring to an author with white nationalist views. The page has now been deleted, but before it was deleted, investigators were able to get some information from his profile. In the bio section of his Instagram account, he posted that he was of Italian and Iranian descent. He had a photo of the iconic Smokey the Bear with a sign stating, Fire Danger High. The caption under the photo was urging people to read the book called Might is Right, written by Ragnar Redbeard. It was published in 1890 and is used in an attempt to justify racism and slavery. Other than the questionable Instagram post, the shooter left very few clues behind as to who he was and why he would conduct such a terrible tragedy. He had officers scratching their heads. The investigators knew that they had to dig deeper if they wanted to get any further in their quest for answers. The police were able to secure two search warrants, one for the shooter's vehicle and one for his apartment in Walker Lake, Nevada. 
The shooter's vehicle was obviously still sitting on Laurel Drive, and when the officers went to search the car, they pulled the shooter's duffel bag from the spot he had stashed it just a few hours earlier. There were also a lot of items in the shooter's vehicle that could help provide answers for detectives. Some of the items were a clown mask, a wilderness survival guide, a first aid kit, and an open bottle of Jack Daniels whiskey, a camouflage pack with a fire shelter tent, and the shotgun the shooter had decided to leave behind before he went on a shooting rampage. A pamphlet about the Garlic Festival was also found in the car. In May of 2019, the shooter had moved into an apartment in the small town of Walker Lake, Nevada. The town has a population of less than 300 people and was very desolate. When police talked to the shooter's landlord, he reported that the shooter moved into the apartment in an unusual way. He paid for three months' rent up front in cash. He had very few belongings with him and no furniture. He had his laptop with him and stated to the landlord he did some sort of online IT work. When the search warrant was executed, the investigators found a gold mine of items that all pointed out that the shooter had been planning a mass attack for quite some time. Investigators had found a gas mask, bulletproof vest, empty boxes of ammunition, a knife, gun pamphlets, computers, and numerous computer hard drives, plus a slew of other items. It was rumored to be found, as well as reading material regarding radical Islam, but the source wasn't authorized to speak with the media, and they wished to remain anonymous. How did the gunman get a banned weapon into the state of California? On July 9th, 2019, he purchased the gun in Nevada, where possession of the gun was legal, online, and had it shipped to Big Mike's Gun and Ammo Shop in Fallon, Nevada. The owner of the store made a public post on Facebook stating, The shooter showed no reason for concern when he arrived to pick up the weapon. A Romanian-built WASR-10 semi-automatic rifle, which is considered an assault weapon. He had only been living in Nevada for a couple of months when he applied to purchase a firearm. Just long enough for him to establish residency, one of the many requirements of purchasing firearms in the state of Nevada. Was this all part of his master plan? You may have noticed that we have only referred to the gunman as the shooter. That is because here at Active Shooter, we are taking part in the Don't Name Them campaign and the No Notoriety campaign. The No Notoriety campaign was started by the family and loved ones of Alex Tevis, a victim of the Aurora movie theater shooting in 2012. We are taking the No Notoriety pledge and not giving the despicable shooters a face or a name. We will not take part in giving them any type of fame. Part of the No Notoriety Media Protocol states we pledge to elevate the names and likeness of all victims killed and or injured to send the message that their lives are more important than the killer's action. The active shooter team is pledging to do just that. On the last weekend of July in 2020, the Gilroy Garlic Festival will still take place. The festival will come together and come back stronger than ever before. Members of the Gilroy Garlic Festival nonprofit organization have had the slogan, hashtag Gilroy Strong, printed on t-shirts and are selling the t-shirts to raise money for victims and victims' families that were killed or injured during this mass attack. If you are interested in learning more about the Don't Name Them or No Notoriety campaigns, make sure to check out Active Shooter on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our first episode. We hope you continue to join us in listening week in and week out. We will leave you with the actual radio traffic between dispatchers and officers during the shooting. You're in Kingston. I'm in the area. 
you, and it sounds like there is an active shooter in the park. People are running towards the U.S. Detroit unit. So we have seven nine one one callers. Got by the main uh, theater. Active Shooter is hosted and edited by Aaron. Research written and produced by Kat Morris. Proofed by Suzanne St. John. Disclaimer and other support by Lainey Hobbs. Moral support provided by Marie Cole. There are many others we wish to name. You know who you are, and we thank you for your constant support. And until next week, stay safe. If you're looking for something different, Murder Mile covers the untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders in London's West End. It's researched using the original police investigation files, it's presented as a dramatisation, and it focuses on the victims' lives in an honest, detailed, and sympathetic way. Murder Mile is about life, not lunatics. So if you love true crime stories about real murders by regular people in everyday places, then Murder Mile is just for you. Murder Mile was nominated one of the best British true crime podcasts of 2018. So if you love things a little bit different, try Murder Mile.